Guys, another Sunday, another episode of Lost Words. I want to thank everyone that's listened to last week's episode. We really had loads of positive feedback and people get in touch. So thank you so much. Need to apologise though. I realise that you can all hear my heavy breathing. We had some sound issues last time. And so it sounded a little bit, I'm not going to lie, it sounded a little bit creepy. And I'm sorry about that. Really sorry. Um, I will... <laughs> I'll do my best to make sure we don't have any of that going going forward. So today I am excited, I'm privileged, and I'm honoured to interview my next guest. I've got a gentleman called Ibrahim Brima. He is... Well, do you know, I don't want to give too much away. The, the title of the episode tells you enough. This one was tough for me because... There were a couple of times in the episode, there were a couple of times in the interview even, when we were chatting and I thought, do you know what, this this is really getting to my heartstrings. And I even said it during the interview that, that I was welling up at one point, I didn't cry. And that's not because I'm scared to cry or anything like that. I, I didn't, but I really, I was really affected by a lot of what he had to say. And I think you will be as well. I was inspired and... I want you guys to go out, give them your support after this. This is what this podcast for, and um, let's get into it. Obviously, first of all, thank you for coming on the show. Um, when when I when you reached out to me and told me a little bit about your story, I was I was excited. I was desperate because I thought, right, I've got a lot a lot to learn from you. So thank you so much for taking your time to come on today. Um, yeah, so I think every story starts at the beginning, and I'd love for you to take us back to to where it all started f- for you. Back to where it all started. Um, I mean, it, it goes back to Nigeria. That's that's where the story really starts because that's where I was born. And I mean, life circumstances shape you. You know, what you go through, the things that you do pretty much shape you. The difficulty that I've actually had with that is as a result that happened later on in my life, a lot of my past are things that I can't actually remember my memories. You know, the weed smoking, all these things have actually killed a lot of my cells, <laughs> which I'm not okay. trying to rebuild, right? So it's really difficult sometimes for me to go back to my childhood. You know, it's something that pains me. I think my only solitude is is having the knowledge that no memory is lost. And as long as I continue on this path of, you know, not using drugs and, you know, things like that, at some point, everything will slowly start to come and piece together. And the I can start to see the signs of that already in just the fact that my short-term memory is now getting a lot better, right? So not that I can remember a lot of the past yet, but because my short-term memory is getting better, I know that things are starting to heal, right? So um, I'm, I'm hopeful that over the, the coming years, that will, that will continue in that way. 
you know, but you know, I, I remember some some things, some feelings. My my earliest memory, actually, which is just strange, because I don't have a lot of memory. But my earliest memories, I remember in Nigeria in the village. So I must have been probably about three or four years old. But I just remember walking through the forest and having a rake over my shoulder, and we were walking to our farm with my grandma and you know other people. I can't remember who the people actually were, but you know my grandma had people living with her and stuff like that. And that's my earliest memory. I don't know why. I remember feeling really happy, right? Um, but that is my earliest memory. That's my earliest memory. And then growing up, obviously, I understand that we didn't we didn't have much, you know, girls. So I lived in a village from somewhere called Edo State. So Benin, you might have heard of. So Benin's quite, you know, a, a famous empire in. So even people who don't know too much about Nigeria would have probably heard about the Benin Empire. So that's the part of Nigeria that that I'm from. But and then I moved to Lagos probably around about the age of six, seven. Um, moved in with my, my auntie, my uncles, grew up with my my cousins who pretty much are my brothers and sisters. You know, so that's that's where I then sort of grew up until the age of thirteen, fourteen before moving to the UK. For context, what year was this? 2000. It's always very easy for me to know how long I've been here because I left in 2000 or I came here in 2000. And so every year now, it's 2021, I've been here 21 years. 2022, I've been here 22 years. So, <laughs> yes. So you guys came over year 2000. Um, before we talk about coming over to Britain, you Just to give some context, first of all, uh, it wasn't like you guys. So my mum had already come to the UK. She came to the UK, um, I think, late 80s, because I was born in 86. So I think it's around, you know, 89 sort of time that my mum actually moved to the UK. So she'd been here. She came over here, you know, to try and create a foundation, a platform to be able to eventually sort of bring, bring me over as well. So, yeah. Something I'd like to comment for the listeners who might not be from Africa, that that type of thing is actually quite common where parents will leave their children with family members or maybe another the other parent, if, if the other parent is around, to move to a different country to, to, to potentially to get a job or to start education. And it's something that my wife, who's white, is um, British, that's something I think that she couldn't imagine doing. And I would find that pretty difficult to leave my kids to go work and work indefinitely. But that's something that so, so many people did. I don't know how many people do that now. I'm hoping over the next few interviews, if I'm speaking to people, they might find out. I might find out more if people still do that now. I suspect they do. But back in the 80s, um, when we were both born, that was something that was really, really common. Is that fair to say? I mean, 100%. Most most people who I grew up with, you know, who, you know, of African descent, very, very similar story. Some of them were born here. Um, but, you know, some the, the older siblings were, you know, they, 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 you know, the parents left them there, came over here, tried to create something for themselves. Because you've really got to look at context. You've got to look at context. So if you're growing up in an environment, as parents, you want what's best for your kids. So you've really got to make an informed choice, an informed decision as to, which is the greater of two evils. Staying here, knowing that the opportunity for my child is probably going to be far less than if I'm actually able to go over there and make something of it. But that means I'm gonna to have to leave my child here because I also do not want my child to be in that environment suffering because I know what, what's over there for me. It's 
being on the streets is scraping at the bottom, you know, at the start to then eventually hope to get somewhere where I'm in a more favorable position where I'm able to bring my child over and I don't want them going through that. It's not an easy choice for a parent to make, <laughs> right? But it is one that gets made all the time, yeah. Yeah, it's a tough, no, it's tough. Such a hard, so hard to, to make that decision for parents. And I think I didn't appreciate that until I was a parent looking back at, I was never partied from my mum for a long time. Um, and actually it was more for work. She um, she worked with the UN at the time. So she would be away for, for periods, but she'd always be coming back. So I never had that that experience where we were partied for any length of time that I could remember. But um, I know so, so, so many people that did that. And, um, and, and you've got to think about the bravery it would take to leave your country where you've got your sports system, you've got your culture, and then you take yourself out of that and you get dropped in to something and somewhere with people you don't know, um, with the cold, cold weather, because that's one of my first memories of coming to this country, and um, and starting from the bottom. So yeah, it's fair play to all those parents have done that, and then the sacrifices they made for us. But I wanted to just um, spend a couple of minutes talking about Nigeria back then. What was what was Nige like? What was it like to to grow up in there? You said you guys didn't have potentially lots of um, spare cash. What what was life like for you? Yeah, I mean, it was it was pretty much that. But like most other kids, I can look at it now with a reflective glass, right? But when you're going through it, it's just what it is. You know, sometimes there's, you know, not enough money, right? And you're all having to share this little pot of food. Um, and sometimes, you know, let's say, you know, your uncle gets paid or, you know, because sometimes, you know, the, the, the companies would hold back months and months and months of salary you got family to feed, right? And this doesn't happen and then all of a sudden this money comes in and it's kind of grey and then there'll be periods where it's just like really, really tough, right? You can't pay school fees. You know, you go with these kids to pay school fees where you can't pay the school fees. And you know, my auntie and uncle were absolutely grafting. You know, they were grafting. There was a, a lot of kids, but also they took in other people's kids as well, you know, so they had a couple of family members, you know, children who they were looking after. So yeah, you know, naturally it was, it was tougher, but it was a really loving environment, right? And you also grew up in an environment where this was just the norm. Like I wasn't surrounded by, you know, all of this wealth and I felt, oh man, my life is so crap. Like why is my life so, it wasn't like that, right? It was just what you knew, you know, we didn't grow up in a rich part of Nigeria. We grew up in a part of Nigeria that people surrounding us had similar experiences. You know, and there were some people who were, you know, a little bit better off. That was normal. You know, I also had family members, you know, so, you know, cousins and uncles who were actually pretty wealthy and, you know, some summers would go and stay with them for like a week. And I'm like, yo, this is, this is living, right? <laughs> this is, this is good. Yeah, I like this. Um, but that's just where it was. It was a holiday and then we'll go back and, but you know, you know it was just what it was. Growing up in Nigeria was fun. Like growing up in Nigeria was amazing. You know, we were lucky enough to actually be the house where people would come. So we had like some space at the front of our house where after school, that's where everyone would come and play football. I was like, I was super, super talented at football. So my cousins, you know, so to be honest, you know, I came to this country, you know, a lot of people thinking I was going to make as a professional. But I remember growing up in Nigeria, I was like, I wasn't like 
the best are those people who are just, I couldn't even get the ball off them, right? There were people who were just super, super talented, but opportunities weren't there. But it was outside our house that everyone would come, would play football up until the evenings where, you know, my uncle, auntie, like, nah, it's over. You love got to come in now. Like everyone else, you go to your houses, like the game's over, right? And that was just every day. It was just fun. Like we had all these kids around. We were kids and we'd play. We had fun after. Like it was, it was fun. It was fun. It was good. Like I said, yes, you know, financially with that sort of stuff, yeah, those things were there. But as a kid, you're kind of growing up, that's just life. But everything else surrounding that, a lot of things that I feel like kids these days actually lack, you know, were things that we just had in abundance, which is space to play having fun with friends and just you know going home no mobile phones none of that sort of stuff just going home putting your bag down being forced to do your homework quickly bang that as quickly as possible and then just run out and go and play you know it was good it was good and it's quite interesting because when you when you kind of distill it down to its, its roots it's quite quintessential childhood where people say oh I was able to play in the streets with my friends play football whatever had to go home do homework and yes, you had all those other pressures um, from a monetary perspective, but actually that's not what you remember. It's the good times. It's it's the feeling that you had people around you that loved you and cared for you. And then that security and that happiness and that, and you can hear it when you're speaking about it. And that, that that's really good to hear. But you guys, you left Nige and then you landed in London. How old were you when you, you came to London? 13, 13. And do you remember your first impression of London? Yeah, I do. And strangely enough, it was June 24th. Well, I left on June 24th, I landed June 25th. So it was summertime, but it was cold. I was like, it is cold. <laughs> like, what's going on? <laughs> what is going on? And the first place we did, we went straight. Obviously now I know it to be Tesco. At the time I didn't know what it was, but even that in itself was, I was like, rah, what is this place? It's mad. Like Tesco, this big shopping, like to me, it was like a shopping center, right? Obviously it wasn't, it was just Tesco. I was like, this is crazy. Like I'm in England, like this is, it was mad. But yeah, that was the first thing we had to do, go and get a jumper, because I was freezing. And then the second thing, <laughs> the second thing is, because I'd been in Nigeria for this, you know, I. I didn't even really remember my mum, right? So it was, but this impression of one day, my mum's going to come for me and I'm going to go to the UK, right? This was just always something that was surrounded by, you know, it was just something that I was conscious of, something that people around me also were aware of. And I only just had this idea of what it was going to be like, right? And then I came to England. And bear in mind, like, at this stage, my mum had done... I didn't know this, but now I do. But she'd, she'd done pretty well for herself, right? Because she'd, she'd grafted. That's a, that's a whole other story. Like, my mama, she'd gone from bottom of the food chain to running her own business, entrepreneur, you know, turning over seven figures, right? From scratch. Unbelievable. Unbelievable story. That's a whole different story in itself. That's a black business, you know, person that you should get on the podcast. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah. But I got there and we got to our house. This is in Catford. I was like, and bear in mind in Nigeria, we were poor, right? But we had our own house. We had a compound. We had like a little farm in front, allotment where we would grow like 
plant, not planting, but like yams and tomatoes and like, there's space. And I've moved to London and we're this is like terrace houses. And I'm like, why are these people's houses next to ours? Like, what's going on? Like, that was like the first, I thought mum was rich. Like, what's going on? Like, and this is someone who bought her own house. It was mortgage. Like, she wasn't paying rent or anything. Like, she owned the house. So she was doing well for herself. But I was like, I thought you were rich, man. Like, what's this? You know what I mean? That was the first impression I had. So from Tesco to Paris and and the cold, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, those, those those are my first two impressions. Really, that 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 was that was yeah, that was my first impressions of England. Yeah, cold and <laughs> why why is our house so small? <laughs> That's a vivid account of what it was like. I love that. <laughs> I um, so what happened? You um started school here? Yeah, I did. The, the I did. I mean, fairness to my mom, she gave me the choice. And I don't know why I picked this choice, but once again, it's just kind of going back to your idea of, of kind of wealth in Nigeria, right? You know, so in Nigeria, there was like this kind of rich people would go to like, let's say like a military school and it would be like a, you know, all boys school. It would be like a boarding school. So I just had this idea, oh yeah, people who are rich, like they go boarding school, same sex, like whatever it was. So for some very strange reason, my mom said like, what do you want to do? There's two options. You can go to this mixed school, you can go to this old boys school. And I picked an old boys school. Like, I don't know what I was thinking. I don't know what I was thinking, but I did. I picked an old boys school. Like my choice, I picked an old boys school. I don't know what was going on, but, um, <laughs> but I did. <laughs> I did St. Joseph's, Green Blazer and Blackheath. Was rough as hell, you know. Um, but yeah, that's it. Started school, obviously started making friends. I mean, it was fun because there was an old girls' school not too far from where we were, like literally up the road at the other end. So, you know, at the end of school, we would go into this place called Lewisham, Lewisham Shopping Centre, and we'd just, yeah, you know, we used to call it chirpsing back then, just be chirpsing girls and, you know, doing all sorts <laughs> of, you know, madness, you know, normal as you would. So, now it was fun. It was fun. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much it. Obviously, I was religious back then, so we'd go to church on Sundays, and you know, we'd and most Sundays would like stop off and like a Chinese and go for like family. Like, so we like my mom was doing all right at this stage, right? So it was like we were comfortable, right? we were comfortable. It's not really, you know, it wasn't, you know, when I came to the UK, London, like things were good, right? Things were good, so it wasn't really wanting for anything like that. But it was just a case of, you know, once I started school, for me, I thought it was all right, right? For me, I thought it was normal. I'm like, okay, I'm making friends, duh, duh, duh. you know, but I think, you know, my mom said one day she came into, um, she came into, Sorry about that. Continue. I'm so sorry. Good. It's so good. Uh, like I so, said, like, listen, I've got a little girl myself, so I get it. But yeah, one day she came in. I think she saw a knife in my in my room. Panic set scene. She's like, who is this guy hanging around with? How is he carrying knives? I mean, it wasn't, she calls it a knife. It wasn't a knife. It was like this. I mean, back then, anyone who's around my age, you know, it was um like Swiss Army knives, right? So they had all this little, it's just, you know, one of those things. 
But, you know, so she starts panicking and thinking, da, 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 you know, before you know it, probably because I started in year nine, which should have been year 10. But I just think because of whatever it was, just because of the timing, boom, from Nigeria, all that sort of stuff. It meant I was doing, I was going to be moving into year nine. So I pretty much did that. See, year nine or year eight, I can't remember, but I did two years in London. And then she's like, now nah, we're moving. And we didn't just move, we moved to Cambridge. But we didn't just move to Cambridge, we moved to a village in Cambridge. All right? Like, she's like, no, I'm taking you away from the city and I'm taking you to a remote village in Cambridge. Like, I'm cutting this life. <laughs> right? So, um, didn't go down well, of course, didn't go down well. As obviously as a young kid, you know, this time I'm like, what, 15? I'm pissed off. I'm leaving all my friends. Like, I'm enjoying London, right? I'm like, this is like, this is cool. Didn't probably didn't speak to my mum for a good couple of weeks. Like, in the same house, it was just fuming. But then obviously, yeah, like, it is what it is. You know, you, you start school again. And we moved in the summer. So it was just really weird because you don't even get an opportunity to start mixing with kids at school to build like a group of friends right it's just like this is just where it's just this blank period where you're not really doing anything where you don't really know anyone so yeah there was that you know but naturally i'm quite you know you know my friends say my superpower is building relationships with people and i've just always kind of been that way so you know i would just go to the park and this is in the village and you know people obviously like who is this we were the only black people in the village like literally the only black people in the village of course so yeah we just speak to people did all of that sort of stuff and then yeah started school only black family in the school myself my sister were literally the only black people in the school so that was an experience how did that, in itself. How did that feel yeah how did that feel being going from me in the center of london you're in catford yeah yeah so hi a mixed dense, mixed population, lots of different ethnicities, but lots of black people. I mean, my school was taken... probably like 90, 95% black, the school in London. Okay, so, so yeah, you went from Lagos to London. Cool. Um, no stress. You're getting mixed with people. You, you, you're starting to build relationships, and then you get plucked from the centre of London to the boondocks. Bang. We're in Cambridge. <laughs> We're in Cambridgeshire in quite white, white, <laughs> middle England what was that like for you it, it's strange it's strange because the very first thing my mom said to me when I first moved to the UK is don't let your colour trap you right that was, that was literally the first thing obviously just to give some context that my stepdad's white right so obviously my mom had she had assimilated into the uk culture right so it was like it's so good there right um so yeah but she she, she said that to me and also i never had any inferiority complex because like i said i grew up in nigeria everyone's black i know black people can be poor i know black people can be rich i've always kind of grown up knowing i'm going to be successful i've always kind of grew up you know having an image of myself so yeah, that, I didn't really, you know, moving to that environment, I didn't really feel any way. I felt like any person would, even if you move to a black environment, right, where you're new in an environment, you don't really know anyone, so you're just getting to know people. But once I was actually put into school, it was just normal, you know, but naturally, people are idiots. 
like especially kids, like kids are savage, right? And you know, they want to say stupid stuff. They don't even know what they're talking about, right? Because how many black people have they seen? They don't even know, but they want to say racist things because they're thinking about before they listen, like I say, you know, people get punched in the face a couple of times and they realize like, okay, maybe, maybe it's not the smartest idea to, to, to be racist to this guy because there's not, there is, you know, he will punch you in the face. So um, that, that, that very quickly died down. That very quickly died down. And it was, it was you know, it was, School was fun. It was a normal experience. Um, yeah, it was, it was pretty normal experience. But I, I mean, I was one of those people in school who I was always intelligent, but I just didn't really apply myself. That's something I'm able to retrospectively look at now and say you didn't apply yourself as best as you could have in school. But you know, it was where it was. Now school was fun. School was fun. It was good. And you feel like it sounds like obviously you had that initial. Tough beginnings, as most people do in that type of situation. But you probably—it sounds like you felt you were accepted. Yeah, at no point did I sort of feel like. I mean, teachers are teachers, right? And there is a—you know—obviously, I've kind of skipped over it because this is a long period of time. But there is a culture within the UK. And generally in, I wouldn't say the UK is a racist place. Obviously racism happens for sure. You know, moving away from school, I've, you know, walking around in Cambridge, people spitting on the floor, like, you know, even with situation with police, I've experienced racism for sure. But obviously that's not the conversation now. But there is a certain image, even if you haven't come across this culture before, that you already have in your head. And that was certainly something that was experienced with the teachers as opposed to the students, actually, which is where students were just students, you know, they're trying to be funny, they get punched and they realize, okay, cool, you know what? This is, it's not really that, that sort of party and that's cool. <laughs> you know, but with the teachers, it's obviously their authority, they're older, you can't really punch a teacher in the face, you, you know, and they're able to call your parents and they're able to do all this. So that was a little bit of a, of a weird experience. That was a little bit, you know, disconcerting from that angle but apart from that yeah it was it was pretty much straightforward okay and then we talk about a, t- a time in your life that was particularly difficult um and we were chatting about this and you were quite open and honest about it and um um tell us about that time yeah i mean it's it, it's something for me i always look at you know how am i able to actually inspire other people to understand what's truly possible in their life you know, so kind of moving forward, probably, well not, yeah, a couple of years after we moved to Cambridge, in the summer of, no, not in the summer of college actually, because I'd started college. So let's say, yeah, because this happened in no, early, no, no, late, it was either late November or early December. So I just started college, so I was like two, three months into college. I get kicked out of home, right? Well, I didn't get kicked out of home. You know what it's like in African family, they're like, nah, we're sending you back to Nigeria, like you're too much. You're going back to Nigeria. And I'm like, yo, I'm speaking to one of my friends at college and he's like, bro, you don't want to go back to Nigeria. It's mad. There's cults, there's this, there's that. Look at you, you're fresh boy from England. Like, they're just going to, like, it's the life that you're going back to over there is a bit mad. So I was like, you know what? I'm not going back. And being who I am anyway, like I said, I'm not an idiot. I've always been fairly smart. Well, that's, you know, my summation of it anyway. <laughs> Other people might have a different opinion on that. But um, I said, okay, cool. 
before I start doing anything mad, let me just sort out my exit plan. So I spoke to a friend who his older brother was driving at the time. I said, look, this is what's happening on Monday. Like, they're trying to fly me back. And it was a Monday. They're trying to fly me back like I'm gone, but I don't want to go. So look, I'm going to speak to them. But if anything happens, I can call you. Just come, you know, and drive me. Just, you know. So he's like, yeah, that's cool. So I'd had all of that kind of planned. And I had their plan of like somewhere a friend who I was gonna stay with, you know, for a couple of days until I saw it out, whatever. And so I'd I'd packaged myself like if this conversation doesn't go how I wanted to go, I've got a plan. So I went, sat my mom down, I'm like, look, this Nigeria stuff, like, let's just try and sort it out, innit? Cause like, <laughs> I'm going to fly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is this business. I don't know if I'm feeling it. Do you know what I mean? Like, let's. So she's also like, nah, this is happening. We're going. I'm like, I'm not going. But I didn't say nothing that night. The next morning, I'll come Monday. I'm like, look. And obviously, I'm young. I'm emotional. So, like, on the Monday, I'm just kicking off and I've never done this. I'm from an African background. I was very, very respectful, all that sort of stuff. But on the Monday, I'm like deeply hurt. I'm wounded and I'm just effing and blinding. You don't fucking care about me anyway. Fuck you. I'm fucking, do you know what I'm saying? Like all of that stuff, like I'm going to the door. And obviously my mom, kind of being my mom, she doesn't know how to react to it. She's also trying to be strong headed, but not realizing like this kid's got a plan. This is, he hasn't just woken up and said like, it's not going. You were 16 this I'm point, 16, yeah. I'm 16. I'm, yeah. No, no, no. I must have just, yeah, because it's after November, so I must have, so depending on when, no, I think I had, had because my birthday's in November 24th. So I think it was just after my birthday. So I think I turned 17, because I started college at 16. So I just turned 17. So I'm like, yeah, I'm gone. All right, I'm, I'm gone. You know, all of that sort of stuff happened. Friend picked me up and life becomes tough, right? Because I've gone from this comfort zone, you know, I'm talking about a village in Cambridge, like we had a five bedroom house, big garden, double garages outside, like, we were good, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, we were good, I was on that path of you go, you go uni, you know, probably 17, at 16, my mom already bought me a moped, you know, at 17, I was probably gonna get a card, work hard, right? like, my mom wasn't, she come from nothing, right? So it wasn't a case of you just get, bought these things, but we were good, you know what I mean? Like, we were good. All of a sudden, I'm living in the YMCA, right? Um, you know, I start doing drugs, like smoking. When I say drugs, I'm smoking weed and all that sort of stuff. And life just changes. You know, life changes. And I'm, I'm doing madness, right? You know, you know, you, when you're in the streets, you do what you got to do. You do what you got to do. Selling drugs, theft, like whatever. Like I did, I did, I did things that I'm not, I'm not proud of now. Um, and then, you know, ultimately, I went through periods where because of the sort of lifestyle, it's peaks and troughs, peaks and troughs. You know, went for a period where I was just homeless, right? I mean, for a huge, you know, a good two, three years in this whole period of time, probably talking about a six year period, I'm homeless. And so when you say homeless, do you mean, do you mean that you had, didn't have a residence or did you mean as well there were times you slept on the streets? Both, both. So I didn't have a residence and there was times I slept in the streets. Okay, and that yeah. I mean, I've I, truthfully I've not had many conversations with people who've had to sleep on the streets. Um, whereabouts was it? Was it in Cambridge? Were you in London? Were you in another city? 
Yeah, no, nah, so this was in Cambridge. So this whole period I was in Cambridge. I was in Cambridge. So, um, and it was the conversation that we had earlier on. There was this particular night where I was in a garage, which was my home. And it's just a normal garage where, you know, people dump stuff, old bikes, boxes, bags of clothes, rubbish. And just in the corner is pretty much my home. There's cardboard boxes on the floor. My duvet is there. And on this particular night, 2006, like it's freezing, right? It's really cold, it's windy, it's raining. And I'm just there. I'm sleeping on the box. I got a duvet over me. But just below the the bottom of the door and the floor of the garage is this little gap. And the wind is just blowing in the rain, right? And my duvet is not getting wet. I'm freezing, I'm shaking, my sinuses is just, it's really damp. I can just smell like damp. It's disgusting. And I just start crying. And I like just, I don't know how long it was for, it felt like a very long time. Just started crying. Because although I've always felt like I was intelligent, I'd always had this, this, this vision of the future for myself. Irrespective of all of that, everything that I had done in my life so far had brought me to this point. And all of this was just playing in my head. Because I was homeless. And like in that moment, I said to myself, this is not going to be my life. This is not going to be me. And I knew that for anything to change, it was me who had to change. And like for the first time in my life, I decided that I was actually going to get some help. And I was going to reach out to someone to actually help. Right? And, and I mean, the very... Because I don't know how many people can, can find one single point that a paradigm shift falls upon them and they decide, I'm taking action and this is what that action is going to look like. I think, yes. I didn't know what the action was going to look like in terms of what was going to get me out of there. But what I knew is that I needed help because I clearly didn't have the answers, right? I didn't have the answers. So the very next day I reached out to my teacher who was one of my teachers in this school, Mr. Adams, because I knew he was the only one who really believed in me. You know, upon all the madness I was doing at school, he would always be like, bro, not bro, like he was a white guy, right? But he would just always like speak to me with like love and like, <laughs> Why are you doing this? Like, you're so intelligent. You're so smart. You could be so much more. So I knew he always just had faith in me. So I reached out to him. And he didn't disappoint. He helped me, got me back on track. Within two years of that day, I was at uni in Southampton. Right? And my life has never been the same since then. You know, I came out of uni, started working in sales, you know, door-to-door knocking sales, right? And then from there, started working for an estate agency, really kind of understood in the estate agency. I went around with no experience, went around with my CV to every single high street agent and said, listen, I love property, homes under the hammer. I grew up in Angela. Like, I, I, like, I know I can do this. Trust me, I can do this. All right? And just the, the one who was actually the largest estate agency chain in the UK at the time who actually employed me, the manager wasn't in. The other ones I had managed to actually speak to the managers, but this one the manager wasn't in. But I made such an impression 
And this is this is you know a big lesson for everyone. It's like you've got to go in to everything that you do with energy. You never know who's watching. You never know who's listening. But you've got to put your best foot forward in everything that you do. And the energy that I showed to the staff, it was the staff. He said to me, when he came in, they said to him, you have to interview this guy. Right? That's what they said to him, and that's why he got, he didn't meet me. He looked at my CV, no lettings experience, no, you know, estate agency experience. But the only reason they brought me in, because his team said, listen, you got to get this guy in. Right? And in that meeting, I said to him, listen, I've never done property before. I love property. And I'm telling you right now, it doesn't matter what your team is doing, I'm going to smash him. Right? I said, you just got to give me the opportunity. Right? And I said, look, this money that you're offering right now, it's not good enough for me, but it's cool. You give me an opportunity, but in three months, you set me whatever targets you want. Once I hit that target, then I want to get paid. Said deal. And that's how I got that job, right? And you know, ever since then, I've just really kind of loved and been in property. But then I strayed away from Professor Good. Did you did you hit those targets? Oh, I smashed it. I smashed it. <laughs> yeah, like the, the, there's like senior. There's, I, 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 I didn't just smash it. I smashed it from the first month. First month, I hit the target, right? Okay. Because what people don't realize in property, and this is what I teach. You know, you know, I, I work with an education company now, a property education company, and you know, when I'm holding my mentoring sessions, I say. Property is not bricks and mortar. Property is a people business. Every step along the way, you're dealing with people, whether it's brokers, whether it's solicitors, whether it's, you know, surveyors, whether it's the vendors, the landlords, investors. These are people, the bricks and mortar, this, it's nothing. That's just a product. Everything else surrounding that is people. And I was good with people. Right, so from day one, and when I say good to people, it's not about selling to people because I, I was able to build trust with them and say, Look, this property is probably not for you, <laughs> right? Based on what we've discussed, the criteria that you said you're looking for, this one's probably not for you. Or I will say to them, Look, I know what you've said to me, but trust me, this doesn't look like the right one on paper. But come and have a look, this is the reason why I think you might like it. This, 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 and this. It's just being real with people and being honest. And you know, that's kind of pretty much what my career took off. And then I launched my own business, which was an insurance. So I went away from a stage and so for a little while, went into insurance because I just felt like I could do it better, right? Because I saw what people what were doing. Insurance? This was life insurance. Okay. Yeah, life insurance. So I had my own business, you know, but we did it with the wrong because we were not directly authorized. Anyone who understands that brokerage, well, we're not, we were an appointed representative. So we were working under someone else's FCA regulations. Um, and, you know, it was the wrong team. You know, something happened there and the plug got pulled. Overnight, lost my business. All right. And that was a really, really. Oh. Hello. Really, really tough period because. Sorry, I've just lost your connections, just gone out there. And, you know, but, but, but more than all of that, it's more me just kind of saying, I'm on the right trajectory now. I'm able to actually start doing things. I can start helping family. I can start doing this. I can start doing all of these ambitions and goals that I had. And, you know, really the vision of what I'd always seen myself, you know, and everything had just been pulled. So there was a good period where I was, I was depressed. And, you and know, coming from... Just for context, how old are you at that point? 
I mean, this was this was 2017. So how old would I have been in 2017? We're not talking a long time ago. So, so I'm 35 years old now. Yeah, so I would have been just just 29, 30. 29, 30. And it was just really, really difficult. That was the first time that I actually bought into this depression stuff because I'd kind of grown up in a tough environment. Like, this is life. When people talking about depressed and stuff, I'm like, bro, just move on, man. Like, just get over it. (laughs) Sort of thing. That's, That's always how I've looked at depression. And it wasn't really until that point that I truly understood, like, because I would be at home having a full-on panic attack, understanding that it's probably just my mind playing with me, but at the same time fully believing that I'm about to die. I was like... Bro, this is this is what like anxiety attacks. This is what mental health is, right? And that was the first time that I truly, truly understood it. But once again, it was just those situations where I just had to I had to coach myself out of it. Like this was the you know the reality is I had a partner who I had told I was going to support her through drama school, so drama school, right? And the reality is it is what it is. The situation has happened now, but you've got to get back on the horse. And make something happen. But it was just one day at a time. And it was Tony Robbins who actually helped me through that period. Because it was just, I was just listening to, you know, motivational stuff. And I'd be telling myself, just get up, get up, get up. And I won't be able to. You know, but over a period of time, eventually, I would get up and go for a walk. And then it turned into a jog, right? And then it turned into, okay, you know what? What's the actual plan? Right? What are we going to do now? And I was like, you got to get back into property. You know? How are we going to do this at a level that I never, ever feel the lack again? I'm never in this position again. Okay, let's have a look. We're moving to London, right? And that was literally it. Packed my bags, moved back to London. Uh, and I went to work for one of the largest, well, the largest property investment firms in the UK. And, you know, that's when things just start picking up because I'm good at what, when it comes to properties, like, it's about people. It's about people, right? So very, very quickly, it started getting good results there. And I thought life was good because I'm making all this money now. You know, things are good. It's it's sustainable. Like I know what I've got to do to just keep bringing in this paycheck every single month. But then last year, in February, we decided we're going to, well, no, in February, but just at the end of 2020, we decided we're going to have our first child. Now my partner's pregnant. And the reality of the job I was doing is I'm working 80 plus hours. These people pay you well, but they want your soul, right? It is just what it is. Like that is, it's a transaction. We pay you, you give me your soul, right? I want your blood. And you know, I'm, I'm dealing with clients who are international, Dubai, Australia, South Africa, Saudi, all over the world, right? And these are wealthy people, when they want you, they want you. So they're calling me at one o'clock in the morning because we've got different time zones and I'm having to pick up this phone and deal with it. And my partner's like, this is crazy. And what you like, we can't keep living like this. You know, and I would always get defensive because, you know, the, what, not, not the reality was, but what I would, what I was using as a mechanism, defense mechanism was like, look, for us to earn what we earn, 
this is what it's going to take, you know, to put us in that position. You know, but deep down, I knew, I knew that the very thing that I was fighting for, because I said to myself, I'm never going to put my family in this position again. I'm going to put us in a position where we never have to worry about money. I can do what I want when I want, right? But that very thing that I was fighting for was what I was now sacrificing time with my family. What happens when my daughter actually comes? And all of that really came to a head February last year when I get a phone call. My mom's been rushing to hospital. She's got COVID. And she's in intensive care. The only thing keeping her alive is a ventilator. Now, I've been from an African background. It's my job. It's my duty to look after everyone. My siblings, you've got phone calls coming in from Africa, like, what's going on with your mom? All of this, I've got to deal with all of this. At the same time, a couple of weeks before that, my father figure, the man who raised me as his own son in Nigeria, who I grew up with, he died. Now, I, I wasn't able to take time of that one because when you're in this world, you, you've got to be calcula calculated. You've got, okay, cool, he's in Nigeria. I already know what they're going to say. Let me not even use this because I already know what's going to happen. So I don't want to, you don't want to use all your chips, right? <laughs> like, I'm a grown man, by the way. I'm a grown man. I'm having to ask another grown man and be, oh, let me not, like, crazy. It's crazy. In my opinion, listen, I know this is things that a lot of people have to deal with, but to me now, I see that as just ludicrous. But that was it's what unfair. I had to do with. It's unfair you're grieving and you're already in a difficult, difficult place. Absolutely, but I didn't even ask. You know, that's the truth. I didn't even ask because I knew what the answer was going to be. But now was my mum. And the situation is happening. And she's here in the UK. And I call my boss. And I'm like, her situation, I've got to take some time off. And he's like, well, listen, mate, there's nothing you can do for her now anyway. Yeah, just pray she gets better because your clients need you. So he's saying, because she's in intensive care, there's nothing you can do anyway. You might as well just keep doing your job. And like the, the feeling that just went through me, right? And right there and then I knew, okay, cool. You know, you're talking about epiphanies. I've had a good couple of them, right? This has got to change. Like this can't be my life because what happens if that's my daughter and she's in a position where she needs a dad, and then you're telling me this, first of all, I'm probably going to punch you in your face, right? But even if I don't do that, that means I'm essentially going to lose the opportunity to feed my family because obviously I'm going to pick my daughter. Obviously I'm going to go, you know, look after her. But then what that's going to mean is I'm probably going to lose my job. So I'm like, I've, I've got to move myself away from this whole situation. And that's essentially, and you know, when you are in a place when you're ready the answer always comes you know like you, you've got to search and when you're searching that's when you actually get the answers and you know that's when I, I came across this guy you know he was talking about getting to property you know doing it for yourself all of that sort of stuff went into a webinar watched the webinar and i was like you know what like i can do this i can do what this guy is saying this this makes sense to me this who, makes who was it that was talking about this so it was a guy called liam ryan Liam Ryan, okay, he's actually kind of like my boss now. <laughs> you know, even though I've got my own businesses, you know, uh, Liam Ryan of Assets for Life as an immobile organization, Assets for Life. So I went over there, I was like, 
I can do this. You know, went and got the training, started getting results. And then it's like, you, you've got some talent. Like, we need people like you on board. So he kind of took me under his wings and started showing me the ropes and all that sort of stuff. I'm now in a position where I've actually got my own, obviously, agency business, but I'm also now working with Liam and Assets for Life, you know, doing webinars. The same webinar that I watched to come on, I'm actually now hosting and running this webinar, which is just crazy. And this is all under a 12-month period. Well, just over now, because this was March of last year, just over now, a 12-month period. Uh, but, you know... I need to ask, how is your mum? How, how, how was she? Thank you. She's fine. She's actually, yeah, she, she's fully recovered. She's out. Um, yeah, she's good. She's good. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, I, need, I needed to find out, because you, you went from a point where you lost someone who raised you and then potentially losing your mother, you had this epiphany. You probably transport, transported yourself into the future and said, nah, nah, I'm not doing this anymore. Um, but obviously the, the, the welfare of your family is so important and because it affects you. And so knowing how she is is vital. Is vital. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I, I always, it's weird because I've told that story um, a couple of times because like I said, you know, for me, the reason why I'm so open with it, the, at first, I didn't want to tell it. Liam, Liam was like, people have to understand, you know, what it takes because what you're doing but not actually sharing your story is you're taking away the potential for someone to have that epiphany, that realisation that you had because people are going through that right now. They're living through what I've lived through. You know, they could be in a position where, you know, they're working for a company where they don't feel appreciated. They're working every hour under the sun, can't spend time with their family and the loved ones. And just being able to understand that there was someone in that position who was also vulnerable and, and I've actually been able to make that shift is something that, you know, I hope will inspire people. And, um, you know, so that, that's why now over time, you know, I wasn't comfortable with it at all to start with because it's, it is raw, you know, it's telling people I was homeless and all that sort of stuff, which is, um, you know, it's, it, it, it takes a hit at the ego, um, you know, but now I see it completely different because, you know, I've, I've had some feedback and it's actually inspired people and it's helping people actually do things in their lives now that's moving them more towards what they want to do because, yeah, like it's all about role models and if you can see someone that's achieved something, someone that looks like you and someone that you know, okay, you know what, bloody hell, it wasn't easy. So now I know you can come from there and actually make it all of a sudden, you have a different perspective and a different viewpoint on what's truly possible for you. And what I love about your story is that, let's be completely honest here, it has nothing to do with race. It, it transcends race, it transcends all of that. It is very much, here's a man, or here was a boy who, who ended up in circumstances where we, any one of us could end up in. You can't, you're not taking someone who is coming from a background that's got no support. You're not taking someone who's come from an abusive family, any of that stuff. You're taking someone who's coming from a middle-class family in a nice area, double garage, five-bedroom house, and taking them across the tracks, plunging them into a different world, plunging them into something that that people people will judge you for, people will 
will look at you and go, ah, he's homeless or this person's this, that, the other. Just the, the looks that people have given you when you're on the street or the looks that people give people on the street now, not given the time of day. And then all the difficulties about being homeless and trying to then get back into society. Um, having a bit more of a chaotic life, not being able to have a bank account, which means that if you're trying to get a fixed address, it, it just all of these things that are to become really difficult, going through that and turning it around, it doesn't matter about your race, your creed, colour, even your sex. That is a story that needs to be told because it does inspire people and it shows people that it can be done. And you've done that. You've really done that. And that, that like I said, I'm so fired up that you're here um, today because it's it's it just it's lifting me out of any sort of funk I might have started to, to tell myself. Oh yeah, I'm not happy about this. I'm not happy about that. It's like, come on, yeah, that 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 what you have done, what you're doing is completely and utterly inspirational. But tell us what no, the last you. twelve months been like. What it, um, you've got your own you've got your own estate agent. So tell us about what's it called. So it's Ibrahim Brahma Properties. <laughs> yeah, so that's, yeah. Ibrahim Brahma Properties. Yeah, very original. But um, yeah, that's, that's, that's brand new, newly launched. And it, it's also something that I want to I wanna create something to, because look, we, we, within our world, there is, I'm talking about the property world now, there is this skepticism around actually being able to make it in property, you know, right? And look, there, there are some people out there who are saying a lot of stuff, you know, everyone wants to be a guru, everyone wants to teach people how to actually do all this property stuff. And it can be a little bit difficult, but there's something that I want to explore. First of all, you know, I want to open an, an estate agency because I want to open up an estate agency and I want to make money doing it. But secondly, I want to show people how you can actually just create wealth through, because like, Property and the stage is one of those things where it's an equalizer, right? With property, there's so many different strategies you can do, but I want, I want to remove that friction for people because right now, the big issue I feel that people have within our industry that's stopping them from success is this bridge that they have to cross when you're explaining to someone that you're a property investor. What does that even mean? What do you mean you're a property investor? You know, like... How do I know I can actually trust you? How do I know you're going to be able to deliver what you're saying you're delivering? So there's almost like an extra barrier that you have to cross. Whereas when you say, I'm an estate agent, oh, okay, cool. Like you're an estate agent. The, the, everyone is already conditioned to what an estate agent is, right? So I don't have to deal with that barrier. Now it's just a case of, okay, can you deliver for me? Now that's a different conversation. We can just have that chat. And I want to go on that journey and I'm going to document that whole process, you know, to show people what's truly possible, right? And then show people exactly how to do it. And that's 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 the journey that I'm, I'm, I'm going on now, essentially. But now the last 12 months have been great, you know, being mentored by, you know, one of the, well, you know, Assets for Life is one of the largest, you know, there's, there's, there's another company that we won't mention. If you're in property, you probably know who they are. You know, they are probably the number one. But when it comes to, you know, property, business and wealth, because we do different trainings, Assets for Life are number one. So being mentored by, you know, the number one business, property and wealth coach in the UK, it's, um, it's humbling, right? to be honest. It's, um, it's, it's really humbling. It's been a great experience. And you talk about you're doing mentoring as well. Do you do, you do that under Assets for Life? So you've That's got correct. your own people, so your own clients that you mentor. So someone wants to get in touch with you and be mentored by you, how would they do that? 
I, I, I don't. I don't for now. I don't for now. Uh, I'm doing it under the Assets for Life umbrella. So we've got, yeah, we've got mentorship. So I do like mentoring on the kind of showing people obviously what I've done to succeed. And because of the investment background that I come from, you know, a lot of things that people worry about within property is how to make money, how to find the money. Like, how do I get investors to actually want to work with me? And the background that I come from, I'm like, money's easy, right? Like, there's a whole bunch of capital out there. Getting investors is not a problem. It's about how you position yourself and actually just understanding what the investor is looking for and also being credible, actually knowing your stuff as well. But once you know that and you're able to present them with viable deals, they're going to jump at it. So it's just sort of changing people's mindset around, you know, putting investors on the pedestal because actually the value that you create, if you look at an investor right now, they've got all this money sat in the bank, is dying. It's dying. Inflation at 7%. Interest rates at zero point one zero point. The money's dead. You look at any sense. Yeah, it's dead, right? And someone who's got cash in the bank, someone who's got a hundred, two hundred, three hundred, a million in the bank, they're not, they're not stupid. <laughs> They've got some sense. So explaining to this person the value that you're going to be able to bring for that same cash they've got that's dying, you give me that same cash. Here's the deal. Look at these numbers. Do these numbers make sense? Yeah, cool. Well, look. I've got three or four other people who I'm showing this. If you're interested, let me know. And then once I've spoken to everyone, then we can strike a deal. Now, don't put them on a pedestal. You are a knight in shining armor right now. Without you, they haven't got an opportunity to not kill that money. Right now, they're killing that money. Right? You're the one that's bringing an opportunity for them to actually save that money. So it's just, it's just that's, that's really the mentorship that I do actually. And then obviously showing people practical, practical steps to actually make that happen, you know, making them credible, you know, and actually, you know, how to go about finding the right investors and things like that. So that's pretty much the mentoring I do now. I haven't got my own product, you know, as of yet. That's probably something that I'm, you know, have I got the ambitions to do that? Absolutely. You know, this is something that's not secret. Liam knows, right? But at the same time, why... You know, the, the, the way that I'm looking at it is, okay, cool, you've got this massive umbrella right now. Let's do something together. Let's do something together. So, yeah, I'm going to create something as well, but, you know, he's my mentor. He's, you know, he's helped me along the journey so far up to this point. Let's see how we're able to amalgamate something. But, you know, I'm also a massive, I'm an entrepreneur, right? So if for whatever reason that relationship also doesn't work, you know, then, of course, you know, I'm going to go off and, and do things for myself as well. But uh, yeah, there's, there's certainly opportunities moving forward, but right now I'm comfortable and it's just a case of building my business to a certain position before I then start, you know, going down that sort of coaching and mentoring route. Okay, that, that's good to hear and that's exciting stuff. And I suspect the way you are, you'll smash it as well. <laughs> Thank you, man. I appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, I think similar but slightly different to, to what your, your previous guest gave me. So he said, what advice would your 10-year-old, so, sorry, your, your future self who's 10 years in the future, what advice should they give you? Which I find a little bit difficult, um, to be honest, because I'm not 10 years from now, right? So I don't know what advice they should give me because that's going to be from a vantage point, right? For me, 
And this is something that I learned recently and I'm like, wow, that's powerful. Five years from today, you will arrive. And this is a Jim Rohn saying, so I'm just going to steal it of Jim Rohn. He said, five years from now, you will arrive. The question is where? I like that. I know that saying and um, I am, I'll make sure I'll pass that on to the next guest. Listen, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. It's been... I was a little bit emotional when you were talking about some of your experiences, I'm not going to lie. And... Um, and it's it's been it's been inspiring and we know we've got big things to come from you and and anyone listening to this knows that for sure um and i can only thank you again for spending the time with us and being so honest and 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 humble with us with it so yeah i appreciate that thank you brother it's been an absolute pleasure and obviously for you as well thank you for hosting me and having me um as many people i can get through to you know i'm i'm, I'm more than happy to do that that was Ibrahim. What an amazing story and what an amazing guest. Guys, that's us for today. I just want to thank you all for your continued support. Keep on listening. Keep on putting this podcast out there. Keep on telling your friends and family about it. I'd love it wherever you listen to it and whatever, whatever type of platform, Spotify, Apple Music, anything. Please like us. Please subscribe us. If you've got time, put a little uh, review Tell me what you think. We are about to launch our Instagram page. There's going to be lots of information about our guests there, a bit more of the stuff that makes us tick over here. And we hope to catch up with you next week. Thank you again. Stay safe, stay blessed.